If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with John Brown. He'll be answering our call on November 30th, 1859, at the age of 59 years old. This call will take place in his jail cell two days before he is hanged. John Brown was a radical abolitionist and a vicious, maniacal murderer who used violence to end slavery at all cost. At least, that's who he was if you were in the pre-Civil War South. If you lived in the North, though, he was a principled, religious man that treated all men and women as his equals. During the time when Kansas and Nebraska were new territories, the United States decided to vote on whether they would be free or slave territories. John Brown had been fighting and losing the battle to abolish slavery for decades, But once the Southerners started killing the free staters in those new territories, Brown decided to fight fire with a broadsword, clarifying his position that murdering those wanting freedom would not be tolerated. The next year, he raided the Harper's Ferry arsenal containing 100,000 weapons. History says that he was there to steal the guns, but he only had 21 people. So how could that be the truth? Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were good friends of John Brown, both recruited men for his cause. A hundred years later, Malcolm X said that white people are not invited into his organization, but if John Brown was still alive, they might let him join. So, is he a terrorist or a principled man who knew how bad slavery was long before the nation had realized it? And why are his actions widely known to be the spark that ignited the Civil War? Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and wool experts everywhere, I give you John Brown. Hello, is that you, Mr. Brown? Yes, yes, it's I. I'm not quite sure how I'm hearing you, but yes, it is I, John Brown. That's okay, sir. My name is Tony Dean, and we have a limited time today. I'm actually talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that the guard just handed you, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if I was sitting in the jail cell with you right there. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. Now, I had to promise the the guard some information about the future so that he would allow this because since you're being hung in two days, security there is on high alert. So he's eventually going to come back. But until that time, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions because in our time, sir, many people see you as a hero, but there are still others that see you as a maniacal, bloodthirsty killer. And I want those people to see the truth. Sir, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you might have first, though? Obviously, this technology is strange to me. I certainly wish I'd have had it in the past. That would have been much easier to do all my planning and fundraising. But no, I guess I will just trust that this is not Satan talking to me, and and I will answer anything you have to ask, or we can have a discussion. I appreciate that. And this is absolutely not Satan. I'm a Christian, absolutely a believer, and... Your life, sir, we know what happens next, and we have an idea of some of the reasons that you were trying to do 
what you were doing to free the black person. And I guess I'd just like to start. Could you kind of describe your surroundings right now? Where are you right now? I'm sitting in the jail cell in the, in, in the jail in Charlestown, Virginia. I've been here since immediately after we were captured back in October. And this is not a pleasant place to be, per se. I, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable. The jailer and his deputies have been kind. And the problem is I'm a little sad about the fact that six of my men are here with me not in the same cell, they're all scheduled to hang too, and I feel rather bad about that. They're all young men. I've lived a good, long life, but they all chose to follow me and to follow for our cause, so that's all on them, I suppose. Do you feel, I mean, the fact that they're going to die so young, do you feel responsible for their death? No, I don't feel responsible. As I said, they followed me. That They understood the problems. They understood the dangers. And because of that, I feel that it was their decision. I feel somewhat bad about them, but not very bad, because the Lord is behind this. I I realized after the raid, as people call it, in October, didn't go the way I wanted to, that the Lord never intended it to go any differently than it did, that he did not intend for me to live and fight slavery, that He intended me to die and have my death be a tool in his hands to completely end slavery. So that's the way I look at it. We are all tools in God's hands. When you were talking about this raid, you're talking about the raid on Harper's Ferry, right? Yes, on the Arsenal and Armory. Can you please, in, I, until I started learning about your life, which I am just fascinated by what you've done, and I'm not, I can't tell you what happens in history, but I'm going to tell you right now, that as you're sitting there two days from being hung, your life will not be in vain. If you could write what happened in history, it probably you would probably look at it and say what you were trying to accomplish happened without giving you too many details. So that, your that time makes has... Me, makes me feel well, that makes me feel good to, to know that I have not been in vain. Your effort is not in vain at all. But the problem is it is so confusing because when, you, when I research your history in this time, it'll come up John Brown the terrorist, John Brown the murderer, and then otherwise John Brown the abolitionist, John Brown the hero, depending on which side of the nation you're getting the story from. But if you would, I need you to tell me because there's a lot of people that don't live in that area that understand what Harper's Ferry is. and It's an arsenal with guns and you were trying to take that over. Tell me what Harper's Ferry is and why this even matters. Harper's Ferry is, of course, the armory where weapons are made, and it's also the arsenal where the weapons are stored. Harper's Ferry is an industrial town on the Potomac, actually where the Potomac and the Shenandoah Rivers merge, and there's lots of water power there, and that's why these manufacturers are there. And I felt it was important that Harper's Ferry was sort of a symbol. I won't go all into it, but... I believe people probably think I was there to take the weapons that were in the arsenal, but that's not why I was there. I was there to prove a point. When I was in Kansas in 1850s, the Liberty Arsenal in Liberty, Missouri, was raided by a group of pro-slavery men to get weapons to attack the men who wanted Kansas to become a free state, and they were never prosecuted. Nothing happened. Nothing happened to them. And I wanted mainly to prove a point that that showed that another raid could occur. I also had other ideas. 
I thought that perhaps to attract enslaved people in the area to join the cause and start a movement against slavery. That obviously did not work out the way I wanted to. But from what you've said, it will eventually work out in the future. It does. My understanding is that in Harper's Ferry, there were 100,000 guns in there. Were you trying to arm the slaves so that they would have the weapons that they needed for this movement? Is that what you were planning? No, that's not what I was planning. I know that's what some people think. That's what I was accused of. But that was not my idea. My idea was perhaps take a few of the weapons, but... We didn't have really enough people with us to take very many of them. The idea was to make a quick raid on Harper's Ferry to make my point about the arsenal being raided, this time back east instead of out in Kansas territory, and then go up into the mountains of Maryland and form up into our group that would then harass slavery and eventually through the harassment and through many efforts, and it would probably take quite a while, as I expected it, to make slavery untenable and to have it be ended on its own. I never intended to have a slave revolt or a slave rebellion that would have slave owners massacred across the country, as happened other times, slave revolt frequently and in bloodshed. And My attempt is always to do these things with as little bloodshed as possible. All men and all women are brothers and sisters, and that includes folks who own slaves. They are misguided. They are down the wrong path, but they are all our brothers and sisters, and killing your brothers and sisters wantonly is just not God's way. The way to do it is to do it as bloodlessly as possible, and I with my experiences in Kansas and now with what happened here in in Harper's Ferry in the very far north of the slave territories, far away from the deep, intense slave holdings of the south, the deep south, I'm certain that without very much bloodshed, it will not end. Slavery is so entrenched that blood, blood will be the only way. That is a terrible thing to have to recognize, but I'm convinced that it will. So that makes a lot of sense because I know, sir, that you're a very religious man. I heard once that you you memorized the entire Bible. Is that true? Yes, yes. And certainly in the certainly somebody that believes so strongly as you do would not want to have this tremendous bloodshed if they didn't have to, but it sounds like you've pretty much settled on the fact that there's no way around it. There's going to be tremendous bloodshed if slavery is ever going to be abolished. As, as intense as it is held, as, as strongly as it is held in the slave-holding states, I see no way around it, but without a great effusion of blood. I am fearful that God will punish America for its sin. The crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Wow. You just cleared something up for me, because as I was reading about this Harper Ferry raid, going back to that for a second, the story that, uh, that I was reading was that there are 100,000 weapons in there. And, I, and you tell me what about this isn't correct, because you really c- did clear something up, and your story obviously makes more sense. But the story was is that A lot of people are under the impression that you were going to take over Harper's Ferry, take control of these 100,000 weapons, and then with the hopes 
that the slaves would hear about what was going on, and then they would all rush in, and you'd be quickly handing out these weapons, and then you would all go down to the south, and you would harass them and murder and disrupt the economy down there so that there would be no way that slavery could exist because all of these slaves would have guns. But yet, as I'm reading that story, that interpretation of history, I keep thinking, how is that the plan? It's not even realistic. First of all, there's no way that you're going to go into Harper's Ferry with, I think you went in, did you go in with 21 or 18 guys? Is that right? 21 total. Yeah. There's no way you go in there with 21 guys and there's 100,000 guns and then you can really distribute those before the United States military shows up. There's no way. And so it makes more sense to me what you're saying. That wasn't the plan. The plan was is this was just another disruption along the way so that you could set an example for the world that, hey, this is not okay. You know what I mean? Is that right? Mostly, mostly right, yes. I did hope to attract a number of enslaved people to the cause at that time, and I did. There were a number of enslaved people that assisted us in Harper's Ferry that I believe the authorities and people who are recording the events there will ignore because I am certain they're going to make this out as to be arrayed by some deranged lunatic. I'm not surprised by that. I have been accused of being out of sound mind for many years because I know that all men and all women are brothers and sisters and that I tell everyone I know that and that I treat all black folks, my black brothers and sisters, as if they are my brothers and sisters. I eat at their houses. We invite them to our houses and serve them at our tables. That is insanity to many Americans, unfortunately. So the fact that somebody might think I'm insane, I can understand that. It didn't help that my, some of my friends during the trial tried to get me to declare that I was insane and ask that I be declared insane so I wouldn't be hanged. And that that, that made me angry, because if I said to save my life that I was insane, that means everything I had ever said about how evil slavery was, how much of an abomination is, how much it is the sum of all villainies would be nothing but the ravings of a lunatic. And I would not do that for any reason. It appears to me that there was an opportunity for you to escape during the Harper's Ferry Raid before the Marines came. Did you n not want to escape once things had gone too far? The plan was to come in, do a quick in and out, to make the point, to attract some freedom seekers to the cause, and then to get up in the mountains as fast as possible. I, I erred. I tried not to frighten the folks in Harper's Ferry. I was not there to terrorize people. I was there for a cause. A train on the Baltimore and Ohio came and we stopped it. And I did not want to terrorize those individuals. I let the train go. Apparently that was a bad mistake because it asked them to please guarantee that they wouldn't tell anyone. And they did tell people as soon as they could. And that brought out the militia. I tried not to injure people, to frighten people. That's not what I intended to do. It intended to be a short raid. And we took hostages, but not to harm them, but so that we could get in and out safely. And I was concerned about my hostages. I was concerned about their well-being and their health and that they wouldn't be injured. I'm afraid that I lingered longer than I intended and 
longer than proved to be a good idea. And uh, we were trapped, and we tried to fight our way out. I tried to negotiate our way out, but none of that worked, and we were eventually overcome and taken prisoners. Gosh, that makes a lot of sense. When I was reading about this train, I'm so glad that you said this because I was going to ask you. So here you go. You take over the arsenal, and then this train comes by, and then you stop it. And history is wondering, why in the world did he let the train go? Because my understanding is you'd cut the telegraph wires to prevent any communication, so you'd have time to do what you wanted to do. But then you didn't keep the train stopped. You just let it go. And that comes down to the fact that you're not trying to scare people or you're not trying to hurt people. You're not a terrorist. Whatever a terrorist is, I had no, no intention of ever terrorizing anyone. I, well, I, and I said, I tried not to hurt anyone. Unfortunately, that, that did not work out that way. And actually, the first man to die was Haywood Shepherd, a, a black man. But he was not cooperating. He was, I'm not sure exactly what happened because I was not there. It was some of my other men. And I never did get the exact story. But he, uh, it was terrible that anyone died there. And, and a, a, one of my black brothers to die was, made me sad. But then he was the first person, I suppose, to die at, at Harper's Ferry, but he was nowhere near the last. And that saddens me. It saddens me now that so many died on both sides. We had to defend ourselves, but I would have preferred to have been allowed to leave peacefully. When you had mentioned earlier that you had blacks in your home and you were in their house and they were in your house, is it true that when you were speaking with an enslaved black person that you would refer to them as Mr. or Mrs.? that was the proper way to do it. If you came up to a white person that you didn't know, or even someone that you knew but not intimately, you address them by their title and their last name. That is just proper. Calling someone that you don't know by their Christian name is an affront. It is to any human being. And our black folks are human beings and our brothers and sisters, so you address them as you would anyone else. I know that enslaved people are called by their first names, even much older than the white person talking. That, that shows disrespect to their humanity. Yes, I always refer to any individual I don't know by their Christian and family name. And until I know them intimately, I refer to Frederick Douglass as Frederick because he is my true and deep friend. But when I first met him, I talked to him, called him Mr. Douglass for quite a while. Mr. Brown, you are such a decent human being. It is amazing that the stories that are said that people don't understand what you're trying to do, that they just can't look at the whole picture and see that what you were trying to do was make the world better. Harriet Tubman said this after you passed away. My general, yes, my general, Harriet Tubman. General Tubman. She said you were the greatest white man that ever lived. I would not say that. I'm not sure what race complexion Jesus was, but if he was not a dark-skinned individual, then I would say he was the greatest white man that, that ever lived. And I don't believe that I'm a great person. I'm not doing anything for myself. I'm merely following what I believe the Lord intends for me to do. My Calvinist background tends to give me the idea that the Lord has plans for me, and it is my duty to, to determine what those plans are and then to carry them out. Even if they're difficult even if they are excruciatingly difficult, because the Lord has a plan. And who am I to question that? When you were cornered, 
during the Harpers Ferry raid, and you were, I think, the last building that you were in, and I just saw a picture of this yesterday, they rebuilt it, and it is, I think it's like a firehouse, it's a little square building. It is a fire engine house. At, the at, fire at, engine it's, house. It's the Arsenal fire engine house, yes. You had your hostages in there, as well as your men that were fighting, correct? Yes, that is where we, that was where I suppose you would say we made our last stand. Is it true that you ordered dinner from a hotel to be delivered to that? Is that true? Yes, but my hostages needed to eat. How is it that people can't see that? They, somebody that really cares about other people, you're defending yourself. How is it people that don't see that that's what a decent person does? How does anybody even put a bad title on you when you order dinner for your hostages from a hotel? I can't answer that. Human nature is what it is. I imagine that my detractors perhaps outlived my, my proponents, if that's the right word, my defenders. And I'm sure that many history books, I'm certain, will be written by those who do not like what I did or what I helped to do. I assume that you said that you weren't going to tell me what history was, but that I did not live and die in vain. So I assume you're telling me that slavery ended. And I am sure that would have made, will make many in America angry at me and hate me for my role in it small role that it probably is. There is no question about it, but you hit the nail right on the head, and that is the people that obviously hate you are the people that this affects negatively, which is human nature, which is a lot of people in the South that had lots of slaves and plantations. But as time passes, the world figures out that slavery is the abomination that you were trying to say that it was all along. So they do figure it out. It's pretty extraordinary. Let me go back. How did you get involved in all of this? How do you get involved in all of this and become a martyr and a national symbol? I mean, you started out as, your, wasn't your father a tanner? And then yeah. you developed your tanner business. How do you go from there to you're the symbol for this whole movement? Where did it start? As one lives through life, one thinks life goes back and forth and back and forth. But when you stand at the end, as I do, and look backwards, you see that there was a straight road from the beginning to where you are now. So I will tell you what I think about that straight road and maybe the curves that it appeared to have in it. I was born May 9th in 1800 in Torrington, Connecticut, as you said, to my father, Owen, and my mother, Ruth. Father was a tanner at the time. Two of my grandfathers served in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. And the one that I was named after, he died in that service. We were always taught that America was, could be the greatest nation on earth, but that as long as it had the yoke of slavery around its neck, it could never achieve what it, its potential was. The Lord would never allow it because of the abomination that it had. It had an abomination from the beginning. It was a slave country. And that slave country, those slave owners and that slave power increased in its power. Every 10 years, it was more powerful. Every event that questioned slavery came out on the side of the people that were in favor of slavery. So slavery got worse and worse. So anybody who saw how evil slavery was and how it wasn't dying, as many said it was likely to do, but instead was getting stronger and stronger, could not set back and let it just go. Is that what it felt like? I, Did it feel like slavery had just tons of momentum? It felt like we were fighting upstream against 
a roaring river. When we were, my, my siblings and I, when we were young, and my parents taught us how evil slavery was, I thought I knew everything about slavery. I thought I knew how bad it was. I hoped that it would end. We worked towards what we could do, and others did too. And then my mother died when I was eight, and that, that was a trauma for the family. My, my father remarried. I grew up, and I was trying to become a good person. As you said, I memorized the Bible. I went to school. I learned. And I, but I kept thinking about the best ways that I could contribute. I did not see myself as a martyr. I don't see myself now as a martyr. I didn't think that I was going to be even a tool of the Lord. But things began to happen that were unusual, that, that I wondered, is there some, something to read into that? And as I grew, that increased. And as I said, slavery just kept getting stronger. In 1820, Missouri was allowed to come into the Union as a slave state in an area where it normally probably wouldn't have been, but the pro-slavers wanted it that way. The pro-slavers in Congress and the Northerners didn't really want that, and so there had to be a compromise. So there was a compromise to bring Missouri in as a slave state and the territory of Maine to be brought in as a free state to balance Congress, and that was what was called the Missouri Compromise. But there was an article in that compromise that said the southern boundary of Missouri, that line of latitude, would be stretched across the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, and it would be the northern boundary of slavery. No slave state could form north of there. South of there, yes, but not north. And slavery was therefore contained. It was a compromise. There's always were compromises. But as in frequently, those who force a compromise to be made always seem to come out on top because the compromise always is made halfway towards the other side. And each time you do that, the side that has the most pressure, and in this case, the slave cause, got more and more that they wanted. And that was just untenable. It just continued to be a thorn in the side of abolitionists and me being an abolitionist it was a thorn in my side, and I tried to think about the best ways to fix that. And I started thinking about how things could be done and perhaps laying the groundwork in my life that perhaps eventually these things could be put into reality. But it took a long time, and I didn't talk about many of this. I didn't talk about it much with my family, let alone myself. Just you have an idea and you work on it over the years. And things happened. Things happened. And it happened in my family, too, which distracted me from time to time. In 1832, my wife, Diantha, she bore our seventh child who died soon after birth. And then Diantha died almost immediately after that. I was left with six children, young children who needed a mother and no helpmate. I had no one to help me. I thought for a minute, for a while, that the Lord had abandoned me for some reason, that I was on the wrong course. And then I found out that I was wrong, that he hadn't abandoned me. He brought me Mary Day, and we met and courted, and we married in 1833, and we began a family of our own. I have fathered 20 children in my life, but I am certain that barely half of them will live to be adults. It's a hard life. In September of 1843, I buried three children within several weeks of each other. 
not aside from the fact that I buried Diantha with the young boy in her arms, and other children died. It, we have not had an easy life. It's not an easy life for anybody, but it's been an especially hard life for the Browns because we make no bones about the fact that we are abolitionists. Yeah, and not no like many abolitionists. Not like many abolitionists that say, yes, slavery is bad, but those people who are enslaved are not our brothers and sisters. And as soon as they are freed from this bondage, and they will be sent back to Africa because America is a white man's country. We've been getting rid of those Indians. Why would we keep other inferiors around? No, we let everyone know that those men and those women who are enslaved are black brothers and sisters. And when they are freed from the bondage that they are in strictly because, only because of the color of their skin, they will join us in this nation as full citizens with full and equal voting rights. And we will live alongside each other and work alongside each other. And our children will go to school together as the equals that we all are. That is what we told people. And that did not make our lives easy in any way. I hadn't even thought about that. That's exactly right. We get rid of the Indians and then we get rid of the blacks. I mean, that's the plan. We bring them here, the blacks here, until we can work them out and build our country and then send them away. Now, when I was asking you if there was some event that happened, and you may recall this, and there may be something else, but I read something that said that there was an event when you were very young and you saw a man yes. eating a yes. Do you know the event I'm talking about? Yes, it was 1812. Okay. The War of 1812 had begun, and there was, with, of course, with, against Great Britain, and there was fear that the, the British would invade the Northwest Territories of the United States, those new territories that were added fairly recently, from their dominions in the north, north of the Great Lakes. So a series of forts were built along that border. And those forts needed soldiers to man them. And of course, those men needed to eat. I said I was born in Connecticut, but event, by this time we were living in the Western Reserve of Ohio. And my father, he contracted with a man to buy a herd of cattle. And uh, he sent me to go round up those cattle and to drive them to one of the forts, which I did. It was more than 100 miles. I drove them by myself. When I got to the fort and started the process of turning them over to the authorities there, I needed to stay for a while. And one of the men there, some of the people were impressed that a 12-year-old boy could do all that work by himself. <laughs> I didn't think anything of it. It was just what I did. But this man came up to me and he said, do you have a place to stay? I said, no. He said, come with me. You can spend the time that, until you go home. You can spend it with my family. And I said, well, thank you, sir. So I went home with him. So he's just being a really and nice I, guy. You think this is a decent person. I thought, he was a, I thought he was a very nice guy. But then I thought he was a very nice gentleman. But then I got to his house and found out that his family, his homestead, included a young boy about my age. I say about my age because he didn't know how old he was. He didn't know when his birthday was. And you might ask, how is that possible? You see, he was one of my black brothers, and he was enslaved to that man. And slaves frequently did not know their birth dates or their exact ages because slave owners did not care how old their slaves were as long as they could work them and work them until they were too old to work. Wow. And, uh, and I treated that young boy as my friend because he was my equal. 
And he wasn't used to that. And so we quickly became friends. He had some free time, amazingly enough, and we played. We shot marbles, among other things. And the night before I was to go home, the man threw a party, I suppose, to show off his lodger. And uh, there was much alcohol drunk that night. And then when everyone had left to go home, that man became enraged with my, my young friend, so much so that he stormed over to the fireplace and picked up the metal coal shovel and stormed over to my young friend and began beating him with it, beating him bloody right in front of my eyes. I was not old enough or big enough or strong enough to stop a full-grown man in a drunken rage, but I could stand there and watch. If I'd have had a pistol, I don't know what would have happened, but I had none. So I stood there and I learned what slavery really meant. He could have killed my friend, but thank the Lord he did not. But he could have, and he would have broken no law. That man was his property to do with as he saw fit. If someone else had killed him, he would have been tried, perhaps not for murder, but for destruction of property. But if that man had killed my friend, he would have had no crime against him. There would have been no repercussions at least not in this mortal realm of ours. In the hereafter, there probably would have been something for him to answer to. For sure. But I stood there and I swore to myself that I would work against slavery for the rest of my life. And that had an overwhelmingly strong effect on me, to know exactly what slavery looked like. Not the, he says, well, the slaves are happy because they sing at their work. They we treat them as members of our family. I hear that all the time. Do you beat your family members? Seriously. And perhaps they sing because they are singing in their agony, not out of happiness, but to keep from crying. I talked to Frederick Douglass a couple of days ago, and he said that... Good. Uh, I hope Frederick is doing well. I'm afraid he may be a little upset about what's going to happen to me. Oh, he's, he is upset about what is happening to you for sure, because no question about it. Even though he didn't join you at Harper's Ferry, he's your biggest fan. There is no question about that. But when I was speaking with him, I was talking about those songs, and he called them sorrow songs. Those weren't songs of happiness. Those weren't people around spending time with their family enjoying each other. Those were songs of sorrow about the life that they were being forced to live. Yes. My family sang around the parlor in joyous celebration and happiness. That is not what enslaved people did in the fields. No, not happiness. In our time, just a couple of years ago, within the last decade, there has been a black president. And the United States is an extremely strong country, the strongest in the world. And this man was the leader of the free world, and he was a black man. Obviously, blacks are as intelligent as whites and as capable as whites. Why is it that it is so clear to you? You can see it so clearly that they're just human beings with a different skin color, and at least half of our nation see them as property and as dogs or oxen or horses. How can they not see they're just different colored people? That I do not have an answer to because you're asking me to put my, myself in the mind of someone who I cannot explain why they feel that way. I know the main reason that they give, the excuse they give, that they can treat our black brothers and sisters the way that they do. They, they are somehow not really human beings. They are 
less than human. They are halfway between humans and the other animals. Or I don't know. I've heard many different stories. I've talked to pro-slavery men. I've talked to men with these attitudes. And I have never been able to figure out where they come from. Of course, they're taught that way. They learn that from the day they were, they were born. Just like I learned from the day I was born how evil slavery was, they're taught that slavery is approved by the Lord of all things. They managed to miss the part in the Old Testament that says, if you enslave your brother, you should be put to death. Isn't that interesting how people just pick and choose from the Bible whatever suits their needs? I suppose they might say, I do that too, because in certain areas, the Lord does talk about slavery, that slavery is mentioned, but not the kind of slavery, not going down through the generations. And it's usually as a result of war not because of skin color and bigotry, prejudice. Are you nervous about being hung in the next two days? No, actually, I, I wish it were sooner. As I said, <laughs> I, my, uh, once I realized that the Lord intended me to die, that was his intention. I welcome it. I hope it does not hurt. I don't want to suffer, but the sooner the better. Because that, the sooner that happens, the sooner my death will be a tool in God's hands, and he can use it the way he sees fit. As I say, I don't believe I'm a martyr. I don't want to be a martyr. I want to be a tool to be used in whatever way the Lord sees. And I hope people don't think I'm some kind of religious zealot, and everything I do is because of some strange religious zeal. I'm a normal human being who perhaps has an understanding somewhat better, I don't know. I have never been able to come to terms with the fact that four million of our black brothers and sisters are in bondage yeah. because, of, because of their skin color, because of the bigotry of the white man. Let me ask you about this last month, because the time from the time where you were captured in Harpers Ferry and then to this time, it's been about a month where you've been in, in jail, correct? month and a half, more or less. I've actually month. been in jail. It will be, it, it's almost a month since I was convicted and sentenced to hang. Yeah, that was on November 2nd. I was convicted and sentenced to hang on December 2nd, which is, of course, two days from now. Right. Oh, that's the date today. So it's November 30th? It's November 30th, time? yes, yes. Okay, yeah. So in the last, during this gap, this window, what, I understand that you have been writing a lot. In fact, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? For one thing, my jailer allows me to have pen and pencil and to receive correspondence and to send correspondence. And I believe the Lord gave me a month after I was convicted. The powers that be at the time, they wanted me to be tried, convicted, and hanged within a week of having been captured. They wanted it done quickly. I think they were afraid that if I continued to be among the mortal realm too long, that my actions might be looked upon differently than they wanted them to be looked upon. And so I tried to get my story out as much as I could in that time, that month the Lord had given me. And uh, I think I did a relatively good job. I've been told by some of my visitors, I get a number of visitors here, some friendly, some not so friendly, some just curious to look at this devil who tried to destroy the South in one blow. Isn't that incredible how you could see 10 people and out of those 10 people, five of them would look at you and think you were the devil and the other five would think that you are the second coming of Jesus. Depending Perhaps not that strongly, but that they would not have been 
a happily dancing on my grave or anything like that. Right, but maybe maybe that, yeah, I don't mean to sound blasphemous, but figuratively speaking, half of them think you're fantastic and half of them think you are the worst human being that has ever been on the planet. That has to be trying for you to get both sides of that argument all the time. Actually, I don't really care what people think about me because I'm not important. Truth is important, and I'm, I appreciate the fact that I can tell you some of my truths today. And you say some people will be able to hear me talking about this and to get my message out. And maybe perhaps that I'm not the person that they have heard that I am. But as I said, what happens to me is insignificant. It is what happens to my black brothers and sisters through, my, through the Lord using my life and my death as the tool to end slavery. You obviously have some very strong feelings about your black brothers and sisters. How do you feel about the way that women are treated? I have tried to treat my, my, the women in my life as, as close to my equals as is possible. I do believe that there are divisions, but those divisions are not set in stone. I believe some people talk about women's work and men's work, but women generally do the cooking, for instance. But a man should do the cooking when it is necessary. In my, when I have out in the field with my men, I insist on doing the cooking because I am taking care of my men. Women work in the field, work alongside of their men. They should be equal. I believe that women and men should be treated equally under the government. There are differences, obviously, but there are commonalities, and I think the commonalities are much stronger than the differences. I, I trust my wife to, to be the person running the homestead when I'm not there. I don't instruct her what to do. I, I feel that she knows what to do. And she doesn't tell me how to run my life and my business. My, my businesses are my efforts against slavery. We are a team. Our family, many years ago, swore together. And we got together in the parlor and swore that we would all work and dedicate our lives to the ending of slavery. So everything we do in our lives is directed towards that in some way or another. You're just single-mindedly focused. That is the thing that you committed to since you saw that boy being beaten, that traumatic event, and that's it. Until that's done, you're not done. How can any decent person see four million of their brothers and sisters in bondage for no reason, really, and accept that and not work against it until it's over, until it's gone, until it's a thing of the past? Gosh, you're so right. I can understand. And of course... I'm not just talking about my black brothers and sisters, but my red brothers and sisters. The Indians in this country have much to complain about, that they have been treated as bad as, in many cases, worse than our black brothers and sisters. But they are not as enslaved as our black brothers and sisters are, and slavery is the abomination. Once before I was born, my father actually, he tried to force the government to arrest and try and convict two white men who had murdered a neighboring Indian, to steal his property. He was unable to get them to do that. They were arrested, but then turned loose. And that's what he taught us, that all men and all women, regardless, are brothers and sisters and should have equal rights and be treated with equal respect. So your father was a strong abolitionist as well? Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about him? He was my hero. I looked up to him. He was a hardworking man. He had the experiences similar to what I did. He fathered 20 children with two wives. His first wife died, and 
My mother was his second wife. That's an odd number, yeah. that he fathered 20 children and then you fathered 20 children. Is that a religious thing? Because it's odd that you both hit right at 20. Was, were you trying I, to I, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to match. I wasn't trying to match his number either. Okay. Like some people, I imagine some people jokingly say that. I can imagine right. the ribble story some people would say about that. But then I don't think most people know how many children my father had. So, so I don't yeah, think that might have come up. And it really doesn't matter. It, it's really beyond the point. How many children a person has is not who they are. It's what, it's what they accomplish. It's what they are and who they are. And my father accomplished a great deal. He helped found a university. He understood the importance of education and once again, the importance of all men and all women being treated equally. I am so grateful that my parents taught me the way they did because had it not been that way, but I've been born in another family in the South that owned slaves. I shudder to think what I might be doing now and how I might be going against the dictates of the Lord instead of following them. Yeah. I mean, you hate to think that if you had been born in the South and if you had been raised with parents that thought that it was just fine to own people and just work them yes, to death. I've never thought of that before, and I've never thought about that, and I don't really... I want to keep thinking about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem at all. I mean, it's a terrible thought. You're making this big push to, to end slavery, and let's say that the current president, who is the president in your time? Right now? The U.S. president now is Buchanan. Okay, let's and, say that uh, Buchanan, he re sees what you're doing, and he says, you know what? This John Brown, this guy is something else. He's great. He's right. We're going to end slavery, and everybody's going to understand. And sure enough, he pulls a lever and slavery is over. And the black people are now free. If you were going to pick up another cause, because you probably would at that point, would it have been women? Would it have been Indians? Where would you have gone next? That is an interesting proposal. If that would have happened, and of course Buchanan would not do that. He was the weakest. I won't say anything negative about him, but I could say much negative about him. If he did do something, if that was possible without the South going into immediate warfare and seceding from the Union, I would like to step back and do what I like to do. I'm a, people have said that I'm an expert in wool, and I believe I do know wool very well. I'm a farmer. I like to raise animals. I'm not sure I would get so involved on anything immediately. That's not to say that I wouldn't. But yes, I believe the way Americans treat our red brothers and sisters would need to be worked at. And I'm not so certain, I'm not sure how that would go about because there are societies who protect our red brothers and sisters. I so, don't know. I would have to think about that. I have never thought about that before because I doubt if anything like that would happen. There's no question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's no yeah, way. There's no question that, to my mind, slavery is so ingrained in the United States that it's, I think I've mentioned that before. It's going to be extremely destructive to get rid of it, but absolutely necessary. Or the United States will never be anything but a third-rate slave power. Where is the momentum with slavery right now in your time? Is it getting worse still, or do you feel like the government is maybe heading that direction and making progress? That's interesting. It is not getting better. And over the last few years, it has gotten much worse. Of course, 1850, when 
California wanted to come into the union. The, there was a, a compromise that needed to be brought up because, because California wanted to come into the union as a free state, and there was no corresponding slave territory to, to balance out like it had in the past, like it had with Missouri and Maine, and there needed to be a compromise, and that compromise allowed California into the union as a free state. But part of that compromise was the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which seriously increased the power of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793. The 1850 version made it a, a crime, serious crime, to aid an escaped slave in any way. It, it made all government officials from the top down to the very lowest to actively seek out, capture, and return freed slaves to their owners. And if they didn't, they were subject to a $1,000 fine. A $1,000 fine in these years around here, that's working man takes two years to earn $1,000. But even common folk, if they did anything to assist a slave, if they were caught with one in their barn or were seen on the street giving them water, they could be arrested and put in federal penitentiary for up to six months and incur a $1,000 fine. That made it much, much stronger, much stronger. But it also made the abolitionist cause a little different than it had been. Prior to that, abolitionists had believed that if you talked about how bad slavery was, you could convince people if they heard it often enough through pamphlets and publications and magazines and lectures how evil slavery was that eventually slavery would end. And they started thinking because of the, the Compromise of 1850, as it was called, that maybe they'd have to do more than talk because slavery was getting stronger every single day. John Brown said that slavery was so entrenched in our society that bloodshed was the only way out. One reason that we know so much about Brown is because of what happened when he was sitting in his jail cell waiting to be hanged. During this about month and a half that he was in jail, he wrote letters nonstop. The newspapers were fascinated with him, and he was constantly getting visitors and doing interviews that allowed him to share his story. He was a national phenomenon. John Brown went viral. At the end of the next episode, you're going to hear about one of his visitors who later assassinated one of America's greatest presidents. If you're enjoying these podcasts, there's a lot more coming. Subscribe now so that you don't miss the next episode.